Today we turn our attention to the eighth chapter of the book of Esther, Megillah Esther, Kapitel Ches, Bayom Hahu. Whereas the previous dramatic chapter began Balaylo Hahu that night, this one begins Bayom Hahu on that day, on the day that things, the Nahafahu, things turned around and Haman was hung and the king's wrath was assuaged. On that day, the king Achashverosh gave to Queen Esther as base Homon Sorer Hayudim. He gave over to her the control of Haman's house, Haman's family. And Mordechai came and was presented to the king, because Esther told Achashverosh exactly who. Mordechai was, in the words of the Ibn Ezra, Echu Korovlo, the words of Rashi, Shehu Dodo, that he was her uncle. Vayosar HaMelech Estabato, Asher HaEvir Mehomon, the king removed the ring which he had removed from Homon. Vayitno the Mordechai, and he gave that ring to Mordechai. Esther es Mordechai al And Esther placed Mordechai in charge of the house of Homon. In the words of the Mados Halevi, Rabbi Shlomo Malkavitz, the author of Lechadodi, whom we have been quoting extensively, Gam ki minog malchus poras lihiyos tabas hamelech biyad mishnehu ubedabas zo miskahen lemishnah. The ring was always given to the viceroy, to the uh, vice president, to the second, to the king. And the transfer of that tabas, in essence, appointed Mordechai as the Mishnah Lamelech. And Esther placed Mordechai over the house of Haman. The Maharal, always sensitive to every nuance, says, why is it first now that Esther is placing Mordechai al base Haman? Shouldn't it say back in Posuk Aleph, after Esther was given the base Haman by Achashvero, she took it and she gave it to Mordechai. Why wait until the Hasoras Hatabas, until the ring is given to Mordechai? Writes the Maharal. It was only after she was able to see that only after Esther saw how dear Mordechai was to Achashverosh. That Mordechai was given a tabas. Then and only then did she say, "Ah, now I can make Mordechai in charge of the base Homon." This is fulfilling the pasuk Kohelis, capital base pasuk Chafav, Kila Adam Shetov Lufanov Nosan Choch Mavadaas V'Simcha, to a man who finds favor in the eyes of God. God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But the sinner, quite the contrary. And the Medrash says, Here is Homon. Apostle Gimel continues, 
as they continued and she spoke to the king and she fell before his feet and she cried and she implored him to undo the evil scheme of Haman and the dastardly plan that he had planned to do to the Jews and the king extended to Esther the golden rod Esther then stood and stood before the king notice in Psukim Gimel and in Psukim Dalit and actually in Posuk Beis but not in Posuk Aleph Esther is no longer called Esther Hamalka she doesn't feel this queenly power, this supreme self-confidence, but rather she knows that the king could very well not grant her this wish of revoking the decree against the Jewish people. But he does. Posokei. Vatoma, she says to him, Notice, if the king, if it's pleasing to the king, and if I am pleasing to the king, and if the matter is pleasing to the king, and if I am find favor, if I am good in your eyes, then reverse the decree. Some read it that way. How can I possibly stand by and observe the undoing of my people? Why all this crying? Why all this imploring? Why all this begging? It seems that something is happening here behind the scenes. If we look ahead to Pasuk tests, we will see that all this is being done, the decrees are undone in the 23rd of Sivan. And one wonders... Did Esther wait from the 17th of Nisan till the 23rd of Sivan, 70 days? Did she wait that long before uh, undoing the decree? What's going on? What is this delay of well over two months? Various answers are given. Ral Bag, who has a commentary on the Megillah Esther, which we have, I don't think we've coded at all in this series. He writes, If you ask something from the king, and you achieved a little bit, the king has granted you some of your request. It is not appropriate. It is not wise. It is not advisable to quickly ask for more. Wait a while. Wait for the proper time and the proper context. In the words of the Maharal, It was just three days ago that Achashverosh sent out the decree to kill the Jews. And if you're going to, now three days later, you're going to write another letter undoing the first. That would look foolish, writes the Maharal. People would think that the king is insane. The king is crazy the way he conducts his affairs. And therefore they waited from the 13th of Nisan when the first decrees went out against the Jews until the 23rd of Sivan undo- when the decree went out undoing the first decrees.
So Esther waited, and the whole process was quite slow. There were these months of suspense, months when things were literally hanging in the balance. Then finally, the words of the Alshech, the king extended his scepter, and then she realized it was a time to ask. But what you're trying to do here, you're trying to undo the infallibility of this king. This king presented himself as being infallible, and now he was going to have to reverse his decree. Not very easy. The king Achashverosh told Esther and Mordechai. In other words, now he's talking not just to Esther, but he's talking to Esther and to Mordechai. And the Vilna Gaon writes, <laughs> fascinating, the Vilna Gaon writes in his commentary that Achashverosh was afraid to talk just to Esther because he was afraid that Esther would start to cry again. He didn't want to deal with a crying, weeping, wailing woman. So he called Mordechai in and said, you be there when I speak to you and to Esther together. And he said, I've given the base home unto Esther. He was hung on the tree on the gallows. He was killed. Why was he killed? Not he was killed because he almost took my queen away from me. No, he is killed because he wants to harm the Jews. And now you guys, Atem, write whatever you wish about the Jews. Sign it, seal it with the signet of the king. It is impossible to reverse something which the king writes and has signed with his seal. And so the psukim go on. From Pasuk Tess, for many, many psukim, we won't read them all. But I want to point out that it would be an interesting exercise for all of you to compare the second set of um, decrees to the first. Mordechai's to Haman's. <coughs> Mordechai's appear now in psukim Tess to Tess 5, psukim 9 to 15. And Haman's appeared way back in chapter 3, Sukim Yudbeis to Tesvav. It's fascinating if you wish, print out both sets of Sukim and compare one to the other, look for the various similarities and differences between them. Homework for all of you. But what I want to do is to focus on one question, which is a very important question. In Mordechai's set of decrees, it's written something new and difficult to understand. Not only that there is a reversal of the decree against the Jews, but that the Jews are given the power and ability to stand up and, de- and defend themselves. And not only to defend themselves defensively, but offensively. Lahashmid, Laharok, Ula'abed, Eskol Chayel Am Umadino. They're given permission to kill, license to kill. All those Hatsodim Osam, all those who are the foes of the Jewish people, Tafanoshim, women and children, Ushulalam Lavos, and Buti. And the Ibn Ezra asks the question Loma Kosav Mordechai Laharog Sone Hayahudim. Why does Mordechai order the Jews to kill their enemies? 
Wouldn't it be enough just to for the Jewish people to escape, to survive, to be spared? Why go on the offensive and kill all of these enemies? And the Ibn Ezra writes something so keen, so provocative, it's worthwhile sharing. The Ibn Ezra writes that Mordechai was a great Chacham. And Achashverosh said, look, the first set of decrees went out, the Jews are done for, do what you can. Do what you can. But realize that the first set of Sforim were written by Haman in my name and sealed with my seal. And I cannot revoke them. Ain Lahoshi. So Mordechai has to write as follows. People of the, all the Medinos, of all the provinces of the king, be aware, be it known, that the king indeed commanded Haman, who was the Mishnah Melech, who was number two in command, to write this in his name. And indeed the king gave his signet, his ring, to seal the fate of the Jewish people on the 13th day of Ador. Now, things have been reversed. And what Haman did, I'm sorry, strike that, and go back a bit. The Ibn Ezra says as follows. Mordechai wisely and shrewdly could tell the people. People, I want you to know that Achashverosh gave Haman permission to tell the Jews to kill their enemies. That Achashverosh's first set of decrees and Achashverosh's intent was not to kill Jews, but to kill the enemies of the Jews. And it was Haman who reversed the matter. And Haman who reversed things. And Haman who said not... Jews can kill their enemies, but the enemies can kill the Jews. And now the king has realized that Haman did not follow his orders. The king has realized that his orders were for the Jews to be able to defend themselves against their enemies, and Haman reversed things and had the enemies kill the Jews. Now the Melech has become aware that Haman's, of Haman's evil scheme. And now the king wants things to be set right. And the proof of it is, says, Haman, says Mordechai, that Haman has been hung and the king has ordered a new set of decrees to realize his original intent that the Jews be allowed to stand up for themselves. This is the insight of the Ibn Ezra. Mordechai was simply saying that this new decree doesn't undo the original decree. It restores the original decree to its original intent because Haman perverted the original decree and changed it into a genocidal decree against the Jews. Now I'm restoring, I'm recognizing the original intent of Ahasuerus, which was to allow the Jews to defend themselves. But this question... Um, this question is something which all, all the Mephorshim struggle with. The Vilna Gon writes that the first decree didn't say anything about killing Jews. It just said, It says, people be ready for the 13th of Adar. Because on that day we're going to tell you something, what to do. The decree didn't say anything about the Jews. And therefore now Mordechai can say to them, Yes, on that day be ready because it's a day for the Jews to take revenge against their enemies. Ralbag writes, 
and others follow in his footsteps, that these enemies didn't mean anybody, just anybody. But rather, the enemies that the Jews were licensed to kill were all, kulom misera amalek, all were Nazis, all were Amalekites, all were those, in the words of Rabag, shehoyu mishtadlim bahashmodas Yisrael merosh, all those were Jew killers. And now, they were given the ability to defend themselves and to kill those who would kill them. It's not a license to just kill anybody. The words of the Maharal, Ki Yisrael kishahim bagolus bein ho'amim, im yesh sonei lohem hu mizera amolek. The Jewish people, if they have an enemy, be it known that enemy is from the seed of Amalek. And therefore, the Jews were basically fulfilling the mitzvah of wiping out the utterly evil Amalek. And the Apostle continues. Mordechai went out from the king in royal garb with techeles, with chur, with a golden crown, with uh, a girdle of linen and scarlet, and a city Shushan, Sohalo Vesamecha, was bright with joy. Was bright with joy. And this, of course, is one of those four psukim which we read aloud with a sense of joy. It's one of the four psukim of Gu'ulo. Whereas before it was Evel Godol Yehudim, now it is La Yehudim Hoysa Oro Vesimcha. The Sasson Viakor. I want to mention the fact that here we see that Mordechai was garbed in Techelis. He was dressed in Techelis, in the dye, the special royal blue dye that is part of our mitzvah of Tzitzis. And it's interesting that the Python, the poet who wrote Shoshanas Yaakov, Says the Jewish people were Tzohalo Vesamecho, Shoshanas Yaakov Tzohalo Vesamecho, Biraosam Yachad Techeles Mordechai. When they saw Mordechai garbed in Techeles, Mordechai was wearing other things, gold, boots, argomon, but it was Techeles that was important. And the Tfilah, which we say after the reading of the Megillah, Horov Es Rivenu, the Nusach of the Marzar Kolbo is. Roiso not as Tefilas Mordechai, but Roiso as Techeles Mordechai. Why the big deal of Techeles? Let us remember the Gemara Meseches Menachos Tafem Gimel Aleph that we are given a mitzvah to put Techeles to put that blue string on our tzitzis. Hoyer Rab Meir Omer Manishtano Techeles Mikol Minei Tzivonim. Rab Meir asks why is Techeles so special that we put this blue string on our tzitzis? Because Tcheles is blue and it reminds one of the sea. The sea reminds one of the sky. And the sky reminds us of God's holy throne. There's a way of contemplating Tcheles, contemplating that blue color and being connected to God himself. And this is the reason why Techeles Mordechai is so important. Through Techeles Mordechai, we connect the entire story back to the Kisei HaKavot. 
Mayahudim Hoyasa Ora Visimcho Visason Viakor. The Gemara Meseches Megillah Daf Tesayin says the Jews had Ora Ora is Torah Torah Or the Jews had Simcha Simcha is Yomtef Vesomachta Bachakecha the Jews had Sason Sason is the Mitzvah of Mila Sason Ochi Alim Losecha and Yikor Glory that's the Mitzvah of Tfilin Tfilin Shevarosh and the Sefer Kat Hakemach of Rabbeinu Bachi says. The meaning of this Medrash Chazal of this Gemara in Meseches Megillah is that there was a decree upon the Jews at this time not only to be killed, but before they were killed not to be able to do mitzvahs. Now that gzera was botel and they could do mitzvahs, study Torah, celebrate Yom Tov, perform the mitzvah of Milah, and wear tefillin. In the words of the Maral, at this point, they were able to reconnect to the intellectual and spiritual beauty of the Torah and the mitzvahs. Vakodim was there before then. They had a Torah, they had a Yom Tif, But, they couldn't celebrate properly because they had Zorg. They were worried about the enemy Amolek. And even though there was not necessarily a zero against doing mitzvahs, but how can you do a mitzvah when the sword is hanging over you? How can you study Torah when Amalek lurks to try to kill you? Writes the Maral. Well, Chayn Zochu Yisrael now that the enemy is gone, now you can do the mitzvahs properly. Notice, Sason is spelt without the usual Vav. Writes the Maharal. Chosra Vav, Lomo, Yes, this is a wonderful time, but it's not the end yet. says the Gemara. We're still servants of Achashverosh. If not Achashverosh, then one of Achashverosh's numerous successors down to our very days. It's not Sason yet. One day there will be Sason with the Vav. Rabachrach shares with us a teaching from his teacher. One of his teachers was Rabbi David HaKohen, known as the Nazir, the student of Rav Kuk, who was a Nazir. And he was the author of a sefer called Kol Hanavua. And in that sefer, Kol Hanavua, there is a chapter called Hisnotsutsus Oro Shel Moshiach, the rising light of the Messiah. And there, Rabbi David HaKohen writes, the distinction between Sason and Simcha. Sason, writes Rav Cohen, is Mahul Bitoga Bitsaal. Sason is not complete joy. Sason means a joy which is tempered somewhat by pain, by disappointment, is not complete happiness. Simcha, that is Simcha Malaya, total happiness. Posukin Yirmiyahu. Perik Lamed Beis, Pasuk Yud Beis. We have Fachti Evlom Lisason Venichamtim Vesimachtim Yegonam. There's a stage. First morning is turned into Sason, not complete joy yet, just Sason. Morning to Sason. Then Nichamtim, consolation, and then Vesimachtim Yegonam. Then joy, pure joy, Simcha. Sason, not complete. Simcha, complete.
Rav David Cohen, the Nazir, suggests that this is why Sason applies, Simcha applies to Yom Tov. Yom Tov is total joy. Sason is Mila. Mila is not total joy. Kibamila yesh tsarod yanuka. In Mila, there is the pain that the baby goes through. So Mila is Sason, not Simcha. Rav Bachrach adds, connecting us back to Nicholas Esther. Based upon his teacher's teaching of the difference between Simcha and Sason. In Megillah Sester, things are not complete yet. Even after the Megillah is over, we're still in exile, and we're still, we still have Achashverosh's over us. So therefore, in Megillah Sester, it is first Simcha, but then Sason. The Simcha is not complete. The Sason is Mema'et, the Simcha. The Sason tempers down the Simcha. But, writes Rav Bachra, in the Geula Hashlema, of which Yeshaya and Yirmiya speak of, there, notice, it's always first Soson and then Simcha. First, tempered joy, incomplete joy, and then full joy, Yeshaya. Soson v'simcha yasigu, Yeshaya. Soson v'simcha yimotzevo, Yirmiyahu. Kol Soson v'kol Simcha. First Soson and then Simcha. First incomplete and then complete. But in Megillus Esther, we're not there yet. It's Simcha v'Sason. And again in Posuk Yud Zayin, the concluding Posuk of this Perikhes. In every province and in every city. Everywhere that the king's new decree reached. Simcha v'Sason la Yehudim. There was joy but incomplete joy. The first impulse was to simcha, complete joy, but then you realize, no, no, we're not quite there yet. It's only sason. For the Jewish people, mishtev, yom tov, verabim misyahadim. Many of the people became gerim. Rashi says, misyahadim, misgairim, they became yehudim. Kinofal pachat ha-yehudim aleihem. Out of the fear of the Jewish people, they became gerim. Hazal look askance at this type of gerus, a conversion to Judaism out of fear. And indeed, the Vilna Gaon very insightfully says, Misyahadim does not mean to become Jewish. It means to pretend you're Jewish. Misyahadim, says the Vilna Gaon, osu atzmom Yehudim. They pretended they were Jewish. But they were not full gerim. They were not converts. They were only doing it out of fear, pachad hayehudim aleihem. In the words of Rav Nechemia in the Gemara Maseches Yevamos, echod gerei aroyos, vechod gerei chalomos, vechod gerei Mordechai the Esther, einom gerim. They're not full-fledged gerim. They're only gerim out of fear. There's a debate about this in the Gemara. It must be told, but the suspicion upon a gerus which comes out of such motives is certainly reflected in Chazal. If these people were Amalek, can an Amalekite become a ger? Is that possible? The Gemara says, Misach Sanhedrin, Dav Tzadik Vov, B'nei Bonov, Mi B'nei Bonov, Shel Homon, Lomdu Toro, B'vnei Barak, Umaninu, Rav Shmuel Bar Shilas. That one of Homan's great grandchildren actually studied Torah in Bnei Brak, and who was this person? The great Rav Shmuel Bar Shila, says the Gemara. 
However, the Balhaturim in Parshas Tetzave, Perik Chofches Posuk Zayin says, "Not mibnei bonov shel homon, but mibnei bonov shel naamon lom du toro, not bifnei brak, but borabim." It's not clear in the sources whether an Amalekite can become a ger. Be that as it may, rabim ame ores misyadim. The goyim here were attracted to Judaism. And this, of course, is the ultimate, ultimate prophecy of the Novi Zechariah, Kapitel Ches, Psukim Yud Gimel, Tuchof Gimel. Zechariah Hanavi promises us, just like you were once a curse word by the, by the Gentiles, you were once a mockery, everyone made fun of you, Beis Yehuda and Beis Yisrael. The time will come. You will no longer be a curse word. You will be a blessing. This is the prophecy of Zechariah in the name of God. The day will come. That ten men will come from every one of the languages. Spanish and the French and the Swahili, they will all come. They will hold on to the hem of the garments of the Jewish person. Remember, that's Mordechai. They will hold on to the garments of the Jewish person. They will say, We want to go with you. Because we hear that God is with you. This is the ultimate, ultimate prophecy of Zechariah, and this is the culmination of Perekhes. That after all is said and done, Rabbi Ame Hores Misyadim, many of these enemies of the Jews, will not only repent of their hostility and their hatred, but Misyadim, they will recognize the Jewish God. Because they will say, as the Navi Zechariah predicts, Shamanu. Elohim imochem. We have heard that God is with you.